Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying together John 15 verses 1 through 17. So there John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, picking up in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life For his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. 
Let's pray together as we come to this text. Oh, Lord, again, we ask that you would meet us now with the words that we speak, share, hear, receive, would be more, much more than the words of a mere man, but we would hear it as it really is, the word of God. Heavenly Father, through the words of Jesus, do the work of God in our hearts. We ask it for your glory and for our joy, in Jesus' name, amen. You've heard it said that absence makes the heart grow fonder. Uh, In some respects, that may be true. Distance between me and Jenny, or me and my kids, or me and coffee, me and peanut butter cups, may generate in me a greater appreciation for those things. But to be clear, I'd pick being near them all day over any appreciable separation from them. To wit, we've had a one-year-old in the house this week, and I've been reminded how the slightest felt distance between a newborn and especially his mother brings on displays of separation anxiety. We still see it in our older kids, but you really see it in one-year-olds. You really see it in true dependents who know and feel this person is the source of my life. You you give the child back to mom and and all is well. Smiles abound, relief returns. For the child, true joy is embedded in abiding with mom. Uh, Absence is not appreciable. It's really a sore spot, and so it'll be for you and me in this Christian life also. Uh, Jesus has departed. We've seen that uh, in this couple of chapters here. There is distance between us, but not such distance that we should be as easily troubled as we may sometimes be, right? He has gone, but he's gone to what? To prepare a place for us, and he's going to return, and he's going to return to take us to that place. And until then, he's given his true dependents free access to all of his resources, including, but not limited to, his own indwelling presence by the Holy Spirit. So yes, there is separation between us and Jesus, but also we've really, in one sense, never been more indivisible. We've never been more united to Christ, which kind of makes our independence from him or any indifference about that independence, a very worrisome trend or very worrisome behavior for dependents like us to display. So, you just ask us, like a toddler with his mom, or let's say a, a branch to its vine, are we ever distressed by an unnecessary separation or distance from Jesus in our lives? Do we think that we're resource enough for the Christian life? Are we concerned at all about 
having and holding to the full the joy of Jesus, which is embedded in abiding in Jesus, refusing, as it were, to be disjoined from Him without a fight, without kicking, without screaming, like a child. Well, let's try to get a hold of all this together in today's text, beginning not in verse 1, but in verse 11. We start there because in verse 11, Jesus tells us the main purpose of the teaching in these verses. He says, verse 11, these things which we're going to address, I have spoken to you. Why? What's the purpose there in verse 11? That my joy may be in you and that your joy, which is really my joy in you, may be what? Full. I think what we're meant to get and feel there is something that may be surprising and is certainly more than may at first meet the eye of our hearts. So I just want you to hear this. Jesus is concerned about your joy. Jesus is concerned about your joy. And Jesus is pursuant of your joy. He speaks and belabors, I think, in these chapters, belabors His speech not just for our instruction, not just for our guidance, not just for our peace, not even just for our love, but for our joy. Jesus wants us to be joyful. And Jesus works constantly for the fullness of that joy in our lives. So, as we'll see, what a friend indeed we have in Jesus. And if we zoom in on it here, Verse 11, we see that what he desires for us is not mere joy. As we learned concerning his peace a week ago, so also his joy is distinct from any joy that the world can give to us. Jesus is after a truly Christian joy for the troubled Christian heart which is not a circumstantial kind of happiness. The joy of this world necessarily operates on the plane of this world. It's not that they aren't real joys, only that however innocent they may be, they aren't this kind of joy. They can't rise to the level of Jesus' joy, which settles it in our souls, that against everything about us, we actually are children of God that we've been reconciled to God, that we're the beloved of God, that we've been most kindly and permanently grafted into Christ such that we are heirs of His grace and His life and His ministry and His world. It's the joy of knowing existentially, experientially, that we are in the Son and that we are as the Son and that however else we are in this world, whatever else might strip away mere joys, Christ's joy is an untouchable thing in our souls. It can never be taken away. To borrow a key word from our text, it always abides. Always. Jesus personally sees to it that it abides. But then it raises the question, doesn't it? Why am I so often angry? 
<laughs> or embittered, or sorrowful, or depressed. Why would, be, why would we be so often known for what seems like every affection under the sun besides heavenly joy? Why are we so joyless instead of joyful? Now, to be sure, again, Christian joy is a totally different creature than worldly levity. Jesus, you may remember, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with the worst kinds of grief. And at the same time, he was the most truly joyful man in the whole history of the human race. It's even said that he endured the cross, despising its shame for what? For the joy. That's right, for the joy that was set before him. So true joy, his joy, is not absent the experience of the greatest griefs and the greatest pains that this world can throw at us. It's just that no matter what it does, no matter what it throws at us, this joy really abides. This peace that we have with God abides, though all the world gives way. No matter how far the incursion of sorrows go, they can't remove what Christ has given to remain. So it's always there. Always, forevermore. It's there. So, why then does it seem so... Just think about your own life this week. Why does that joy seem so muted? So numbed? So far away? Maybe even lost? so very frequently. If, if that joy abides in us, and Christ Himself desires that joy, not just that we know that joy, but that we actually feel that joy, that we have a living sense of that joy, why would we ever not? And the answer appears to turn on you and me. In other words, Jesus seems to lay joylessness at our feet, but not without a path of recovery or maintenance. Or, to say it another way, in His pursuit of His joy in us, God has wholeheartedly signed off on a single path or means of grace, which is the command that Jesus gives us in verse 4 of this chapter. What's the command? Abide in me. Abide in me, and I in you. True Christian joy is embedded in abiding in Jesus Christ. Or, abiding in Jesus Christ is the commanded impetus, the mobilizing force behind a consistent and vibrant experience of Christian joy. So, let's just give a minute to this imperative, abide in me, I in you, and then we'll give the rest of our time to seeing how Jesus more specifically conceives of this for our joy, okay? By abide in me, Jesus commands us to stay what? Attached. Stay attached to him, to keep in touch, to hold contact. Let nothing come between us. Really, he commands us to act our age, we might say. He wants us to live like true dependents, like the one-year-old with his mom. Or again, 
as branches that must be connected to the vine or else what? They die. I suppose we should ask ourselves then just how serious we are about living. Just how serious we are about living the Christian life. Just how serious we are about living the joyful Christian life. You see, dear ones, in Christianity, the flow of maturity is different than it is in biology. As we mature by nature, don't we tend to move toward a growing independence? Whereas in Christianity, we should be moving toward a growing what? Dependence. The mature in Christ are not those who think they have little need of Christ from day to day, but those who feel in their souls that they cannot live a single second without Him. The most mature are spiritual infants. (laughs) In that, they will kick and scream just to cling to Jesus. So, what do we run to as the source of our life? What do we cry for as the source of our life? What do we understand to be the source of our lives? If there weren't any other competing options in the world, would Jesus need to command us what He commands us here? Abide in Me. And not, I think, without its great effect. What better way to promote the joy of Christ in us than to promote the formation of Christ in us? Abide in Me and... I in you. Now again, as with his joy, Christ also is already in us. If you're Christian, we are already indwelled, recall it, by the Spirit of Christ. But so in the same way we need to then appropriate the joy we really do have, we need to appropriate the Christ who is really inside of us. So now we're talking about sanctification, growth in Christ. Christ is in us, but over time, Christ also needs to be formed within us. That was one of Paul's great concerns in Galatians, wasn't it? As a spiritual parent, he spoke to them, needed to speak to them, sadly, again, of being in the anguish of childbirth until what? Until Christ was formed in them. And just so Jesus wants us to abide in Him, to the effect that He abide in an increasing way within us. That there be a steadily growing Christ-likeness about us, and with that Christ-likeness, a steadily growing taste and awareness of Christ's own joy. So abiding in Jesus is the commanded impetus behind the consistent and vibrant experience of Christian joy. It's embedded in abiding in Him. In His pursuit of our joy, Jesus really just calls us to pursue Him. And so we want, what we want to do now is, is gather up all He says about it, everything He reveals as essential for Christian joy in this world, and work through it together. And the first thing, as we come to the head of our passage now, look at verse 1, is that we're to know our identity in light of His. Know our identity in light of His. 
So in verse 1, Jesus establishes his identity. It's the last of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the true vine, which might not sound like much to us, but would have struck a mighty chord in Israel. Right? You see in the Old Testament, or maybe you just remember from what Jenny read in our call to worship this morning, from Psalm 80, Israel was the vine that God had planted in the world, and if you wanted to be a part then of God's vineyard, you had to be part of that vine. You had to be grafted into the vine. Problem was, for all God's care, Israel as a vine never proved true to God, ultimately. But instead, on the whole, they proved to be wild. They never bore the fruit that was consistent with the life of God in the soul. And so as a negative type then, they always provided really just a platform for Christ. And here Jesus is saying, in our passage, I am, not just any vine, I'm the the true vine. It's me. Meaning, if anyone would ever be a part of God's true people, they have to be united to Jesus. If anyone would ever participate in life from the dead and all the fruit that that entails, they've got to be grafted into Jesus. It's similar to the exclusivity of John 14, verse 6. I don't know if you remember that. There are not multiple vines. God's given one vine. One true vine. Only in Christ can a sinner come alive to God and then go on to live to God. And so, friend, if you're unbelieving this morning, you must believe in Jesus because that's the only way that you can be united to Jesus. It's the only way to gain new life, spiritual life, eternal life. He's the only way to come by God's gracious care as our Father and, in the passage, vine dresser. And Jesus wants his disciples to rest assured about this. In the shadow of his death on the cross, because it's like right there, we're right there. In the shadow of his death on the cross, he wants them to know that he's the source of life with God. That he's yet the true vine. And that if they would live to God as they ought, they cannot expect to ever do that while being at a distance from Him. Abiding in Christ begins with knowing who He is. He's the true vine. But then, there's also knowing who we are in light of this. In light of Him. And what that means for us. It is a wonderfully kind, and customary thing that Christ does here when He tells us what He's done for us and what He does for us before telling us what we're to do with respect to Him. In fact, that's what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world. It's called grace. So in verse 3, He tells them He's already cleansed them by His Word. Christ's words 
are the great cleansing agent for the soul. Faith comes by hearing, we read this morning in corporate prayer. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so here he tells them, and you hear it for yourself, that his word was mighty and merciful and effective towards them. It's already cleansed you. By it, he's washed away their sins. By it, he has cleansed their hearts. By it, he has made them native to the life of God in the soul of man. (laughs) Oh, church, may we never in any way or to any degree trivialize, relativize, or marginalize the word of Christ. And even this single word, already. It is extremely comfortable to know the alreadies of Jesus. You know why? Because they assure us of the not yet's. If Jesus has begun a good work in you, guess what? It will be finished. He will complete it. It cannot fail. So he's assuring them that as, in verse 2, the Father walks along the vine to increase its productivity, they at least will never be broken off for judgment. But as they are united to Jesus and are living branches, they will have and never lose the Father's sanctifying eye and care. And the Father knows what He's doing in this, okay? So He's not at all like me, improperly hacking away at azaleas, right? And and largely killing what's living in the process. And Jenny's having to like jump out the window at me because of what I'm destroying. Okay? No, it's more like Jenny's labors with our tomato plants. It's a better illustration. As she investigates the vine and branches very slowly, deliberately, for hours sometimes, removing what's dead, removing what's rotten, removing what's parasitic, in order to give the plant greater opportunity for producing really big, healthy tomatoes. And usually, that's what happens. But with living branches, by God's care, what Jesus is saying is, this is what always, inevitably, happens. We bear fruit for God. Christians bear fruit for God. So there's great assurance here geared towards abiding in Christ. It's first of all to abide in grace. It's to know our identity in light of His. He is the true vine. We who were dead are now living branches and God does nothing. Just store it away for your life, okay? God does nothing but what He knows will help grow the fruit of Jesus in our lives. Grace guarantees it. Abide there and you will know the joy of Jesus. Next, 
Abiding in Christ involves being motivated by His motivations. And there are a few starting in verse 4. Jesus is concerned, again, that we bear much fruit. In fact, we can say the main presupposition in this passage is that every branch, every branch that is vitally united to the vine will, to variable but certain degrees, bear fruit. Again, Christians are fruit bearers for God. All the more reason we must tangibly abide in Christ. I want us to note what he says, particularly at the end of verse 5, if you want to look there. as it is with a vine and its branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he says, he it is, or she it is, that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do a lot of things, but nothing that Christ would rejoice to call his own. Our dependence upon Jesus matters vitally in our doing for Jesus. Human pragmatism can be very spiritually problematic. If we begin to let the pressures of immediate results or the pride of our personal resources or the self-congratulation of achievement push out deep reliance upon Jesus, all we've done is squeeze out true life and power from our life and labors. Like a branch that's been sort of bent from the vine. Last I checked, the average pastor in these United States prays for less than seven minutes a day. The average pastor. How about you and me? And we wonder why our lives and our ministries and our churches are so terminally human. (laughs) Perhaps, while yet united, our line to Jesus is just pinched. It's choked off by time commitments. It's choked off by uh, just worldly busyness or by carelessness. We just don't care very much about bearing fruit for God. Maybe it's pinched off by success. Maybe it's pinched off by shame because of our sinning and Satan telling us you cannot go back to that throne. Listen, Satan is fine with loads of religious doing so long as it's independent from Jesus' power. Let it be enough for us to abide in Him that Jesus explicitly denies to us the ability to bear fruit to God in ourselves. Apart from me, you can do nothing. On the flip side of that, just for a touch of grace, in the midst of all this, can we not thank Christ then for even the slightest bud or sapling, even as we might for the greatest harvest. Any divine fruit at all is infinitely more 
than nothing at all divine. We should rejoice in the bud (laughs) and do all we can to cultivate a habitat with loads, you know where I'm probably going to go if you know me well enough, loads of sunlight, S-O-N, sorry, and water from the Word. Sunlight, water from the Word. But what if there isn't any fruit? What if a branch is barren? Or or what if there is fruit, but the fruit is anti-Christ? What are we to make of those whose habit is to stand opposite the Word of God in their lives? I think in this text, it's at least to give a warning to them in the hope of driving them to Jesus. Beloved, it's not our place to render final judgments concerning people's souls, but it is God's. And so you see, as the father is passionate about the fruitfulness of his son's mission, again, the father is tireless, he's scrupulous, he's irreproachable as a dresser of the vine. I trust you've seen branches before that may be caught up in the vine. They're caught in the vine, but they're not connected to the vine. Surrounded by green and fruit and life, these branches lie darkened and dormant. And and we can be really gracious there because that's how we were before God took us and grafted us into Christ and gave us life from the dead. There are many, I fear, in general, mixed in among the living branches, whom God definitively knows to be separated from Christ and spiritually dead. That's the image here. And in due time, as he goes along the vine to maximize its fruitfulness, what does he do with these branches? What does Jesus say he does with these branches? He removes them. And they wither. And he gathers them up, and he throws them. And he throws them, he says, into a fire for burning. This is a most solemn motivation for abiding in Jesus. Fruitless people need to hear it. And fruitlessness is about to become more defined. But the warning is really just not to let your own dry rot become a kindling for judgment. As a branch caught in a vine, a person may be especially close to Christ and yet not be in Christ. If that alarms us, that's the point. The reality of hell has a place in our pursuit of heavenly joy. It should motivate us to abide all the more in Jesus. And to be sure, if you need it, just know that spiritual life will inevitably show itself. If there's life in a branch, what happens? 
It blossoms. There's life in it. And if Christ is in you, guess what? We'll see Him. It may not always be as demonstrable as we'd like, (laughs) but it will be definite and it will be discernible, which for now is one last motive. I want us to hear that Jesus cares that we prove to be His disciples. We prove to be His disciples. And in expressing that desire, He sheds some light on what defines living branches. So this is what you've been waiting for, right? What defines a living branch? What is this fruit that is being born in our lives? You pick up in verse 7. He says, if you abide in me, and what abides in you? My words. My words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So, proof positive disciples of Jesus take His words into their hearts and breathe them right back out in prayer. So deep is their abiding that His revelation in Scripture informs their intercession before the throne of God. We long to ask His own desires from Him. That's the life that will bear much fruit. It is the praying life that's hospitable and conformable to His Word. So, how is the proof in our lives? Abiding in Christ involves being motivated by the motives of Jesus. It also involves keeping His commandments. If you look, starting in verse 9, Jesus says that He's loved His disciples with the Father's love for Him. He's displayed the love of God for us, both in the sense of God's love for us and what it looks like for us to love God. Jesus has shown them the love of God and love for God. And we're to follow suit. You see, he calls them to abide in his love, and then he tells them how to do that. He says, if you, what? Keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, if you were here last week, I think it was, this is distinct, what he just said is distinct from John 14, verse 15. In 14, 15, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is different. There, we said love to Christ is the life in our obedience to Christ. And it is. But here, it's actually obedience to Christ that sustains our love to Christ. Whereas sin is a rock that will eat it away. That will erode it. It all wrote our love for Christ. So there's something self-perpetuating here, isn't there? We take Jesus at His word, and as we take Jesus at His word, He becomes more captivating to our hearts. And as He becomes more captivating to our hearts, guess what? <laughs> it compels further obedience. More of this taking Him at His word. So true obedience 
is a signal that a heart is couched in the love of God. So Jesus, in loving the Father, proved him worthy of obedience to the max, all the way to death on the cross. Is that the testimony of our lives with respect to Jesus? Love as the life of obedience and obedience as a guard to love challenges both a hollow obedience, the mere form of godliness, and it challenges a love for Christ. Oh, I love Him. That's left on the list. Truly divine love will take on a truly divine look. It will be adorned in our lives. Abiding in Jesus involves enduring in obedience to Jesus. And one command especially. You see how he narrows from commandments, plural, to commandment, one In verse 12, listen, dear ones, it should be so revealing one way or another that our living Lord, whose life is coursing through our souls, has of all His commands one command in mind as if all the others are dependent upon our keeping this one. As if abiding in His grace and motives and love, as if pursuing His joyfulness has a single great necessity. And what is it? It's that we love one another as Christ has loved us. It's that, as I've put it, we especially befriend His friends. And who are His friends? It's these disciples. And it's everyone who proves to be a true disciple of Jesus. It's those, as we step our way through these few verses, who know Jesus and love Jesus and obey Jesus such that, if you look in verses 16 and 17 there, they are prayerfully producing for Jesus in the context of His missional community of love, which we now call a church. He's not chosen us and appointed us and equipped us with God's Word and His Gospel to be evangelists in isolation. He's done it, perhaps against what makes sense to us, so that verse 17, you will love one another. Any true success in the Christian life and ministry will find itself inseparable from a life of love in a local church. Why? Well, just think about it this way. You're not the only branch on the vine. So that if you are abiding in Jesus you're going to undoubtedly find yourself tangled up 
in the lives of others who are also seeking to live upon Jesus. It's hard to abide in Christ and not abide in His bride. It's hard to abide in the vine and not get tangled up with His branches. You say, I don't know. They're, they're a great mess. They got all kinds of problems. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why we're called to love each other as Christ loved us. Cross-bearing. Love. It's a part of our growth in Christ to love like that. To love people who are hard to love. That's part of our becoming like Jesus. We're not easy to love. And we find it hard to love. Yet we're called to do that hard thing and what? Love. Because in that we become a living display of the cross of Jesus. We lock arms with Jesus in loving those for whom He died. Greater love, verse 13, has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. And we know, we know, the, the greatest expression of that is the cross of Christ. But then it's hard to see how we, can't, how we can know that and, and then not be the someone in the verse in this church. As we saw in John 13, verses 34 and 35, as we'll go right into next week, we absolutely are called to be missional out there. But in Jesus' mind, with his disciples here, all of that out there begins by doing our part in the cultivation of a community here that builds itself up in love. Our gospel witness to the world needs a gospel base in the world. It needs a people where the rule is love. If we know Christ's joy, we've got to learn to abide in His grace. We've got to learn to abide in His motivations. We've got to learn to abide in His love. And we've got to learn to abide in His church. Friend, we pray you see the love of God for you in Jesus. If you're unbelieving, don't be content to be close to Jesus without then being connected to Jesus. He lived to die, to rise, to save you from your sins and reconcile you both to God and to His people. So won't you believe in Him? Won't you believe in Him this morning? You must believe in Him. If ever, if ever, you would live a truly joyful life and know a joy that is full for all eternity. But beloved, having said that, are we full of the joy of Jesus? What we've seen this morning, I think, is that it depends, right? Jesus is working for our joy, 
but are we abiding in Jesus? Because his joy is embedded in that abiding. It's in knowing our identity in light of his. It's in, be, it's in being motivated by his motivations. It's in keeping his commands. It's in befriending his friends. If we give ourselves fully to his grace and motives and love, his people, our Lord's joy, he's saying, will be in us and it will be full. And so our call this morning is to grow up and become true dependence. Like the one-year-old with his mom. Or like a branch on a vine. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for putting up with us. May your love, may your joy make its way all the more into our hearts and into our lives. We ask this, that we might bear much fruit to your glory in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.